Psalm 23, verse uh, 1 is where we'll pick up. We'll read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 6. The Bible says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me <clears throat> beside the still waters. Excuse me. <clears throat> I'm going to grab a drink of water real quick. I got bugs on the pulpit and in my throat. This is crazy. <clears throat> Let's start from the top. How about that? The Lord's my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, if you've uh, been here on uh, Sunday mornings for our He Came series, or if you were in our Wednesday night series just through uh, December and January, I walked through the book of Habakkuk. I have actually alluded to today's message probably three or four times over the past couple months. It's a message that I have been uh, looking forward to. I have been anticipating, knowing it was coming, and knowing I'd be in Psalm 23.3 here in early February. I've uh, honestly been looking forward to the sermon for some time, and here's the reason why. About a year or so ago, I was reading a book for one of uh, a, a seminary class, and inside of that book, uh, it presented me with a new truth, a theological truth, and that, that's not abnormal. That would happen often, and that's good. That's how you grow. It's how you learn. You, you learn new things. Uh, but the truth that I was presented with was not just some little nugget or some little portion of a verse. It was this big, explosive sort of truth. And, and according to the author, his claim was that this truth was woven all throughout Scripture and that it was paramount, really, for seeing God properly and having a clear theology and it was not just this little nugget. I mean, it was this major truth. And I naturally, I was resistant to it, honestly. Because in my, in my head, I thought, I've been in church like 28 years. I have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in theology. I know the Bible. I have a decent handle on it. Like, there's no way I would have missed a truth this big. There's no way that I would have viewed God semi-improperly like, it just couldn't be. Like, someone would have told me this along the way. Like, there's no way this big, this profound that I would have missed it. And so what I did is I just kind of tucked it in the back of my head, and I prayed a prayers that I've prayed many, many times from Psalm 119, that, uh, Lord, open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Lord, teach me thy statutes. Some of those prayers are in the Bible. And just said, you know, teach me and, and, and show me. I'm just going to kind of sequester it to the back of my brain. And over the course of about uh, the last year or so, as I have read and studied and even heard a missionary like Nick Malucci who came here during the summer, our missionary, uh, one of that we support, over and over again I've been presented with this truth and it's just kind of been ever before me as I have read and studied the Bible. So uh, I would say probably three or four months in I was like, I give up. This is completely Bible and this truth has been hiding in plain sight from me for a lot of years. So this morning I get to give it to you, and I'm going to give it to you in a nutshell. There's no way I can give you the whole thing. Uh, maybe by the time 2017 is done, we'll do a four or five week series on this and looking at God and his attributes and trying to get a, a clear picture of him. But this morning I get to give it to you in a nutshell. So if I could put it in a short, 
terse, slap it on a t-shirt sort of way, it would be what's above me. It would be my good, his glory. It would be based off and rooted in here, Psalm 23.3, this thought that he leads me in paths of righteousness, but it's for his namesake. And there's this holy guidance inside of this verse, but it's coupled with this divine motive that it's not just guiding in paths of righteousness, but ultimately it's guiding in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So I'm going to cover his good, and then I'm going to cover uh, or our good, my good, then I'm going to cover his glory. And when we get to uh, his glory, I'm, I'll just warn you up front, okay? Today I'm just going to throw you a fastball right down the middle of the plate. I'm going to give you a lot of Bible I'm just going to load the Bible dump truck up and just, I'm just going to dump it out on you, okay? There's not going to be a lot of illustrations or funny stories or things like that. For me to, to cover the ground I want to, it's just going to be a lot of Bible. So you're going to have to engage your mind a little bit. You're going to have to think a little bit with me today. We'll cover these two points. Under point number two, don't get scared, okay? Under point number two is glory. I'm going to ask you ten questions. Now, I promise you, I will cover them quickly. I just did it last service, okay? So I know I can do it again. I'm going to cover them quickly, but we're going to cover a lot of ground, cover a lot of Bible today, and looking at this thought of my good, yes, but also his glory. So let's jump in with my good. So the Bible says in Psalm 23, verse 3, that uh, he restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness. That word leadeth is the word that's used in the Old Testament as the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day led the children of Israel throughout the wilderness. It led them. And it's saying that just like that led them, he, God, the good shepherd, Jesus, he will lead me. And he'll lead me, the Bible says, in paths of righteousness. And this this is what Proverbs 2 tells us, that we must seek the Lord, we must seek his wisdom, and if we do that, then we'll understand righteousness and judgment and equity, yea, every good path, that that comes from seeking the Lord, and it comes from his leading, and it's paths of righteousness. It's the Hebrew word, sedek, and it Literally what David is saying, there's this constant analogy between the shepherd and the sheep. What David is doing is he's drawing this analogy to, back to the sheepfold and back to how sheep are as creatures. And sheep, unlike any other animal, they need direction and they need leading. Sheep are extremely, we've mentioned this several times, and it's not, it's not good news because we're compared to sheep, but sheep are very dense, stubborn stupid animals that need to be led and it's very easy for a sheep to go astray a sheep could be literally a sheep could walk the same path every day for a year but if the shepherd stops leading it the sheep will wander off that path and be lost in a moment it has no sense of direction it has no sense of of remembering the habit and, and forming a pattern and this is where i go it can be led astray very easy a sheep literally will walk to the edge of a cliff and just keep on walking It'll walk right off the edge of a cliff. Like it won't stop and think, oh, there's danger there. It'll just keep on going. It'll walk to a, a big pool of water. It'll jump in and the water will uh, begin to get in the wool, weigh it down, and it'll drown itself. Uh, one of our own, uh, Joyce Rosenbauer over here, uh, plays during the invitation every Sunday, grew up on a sheep farm. And she was telling me just a couple weeks ago that it was her barn, her neighbor's barn, I forget what. The barn catches on fire. It's a blaze, all this hay, the barn's on fire. And half of the sheepfold ran into the fire to their own death and destruction. Like that's, that's, that's what sheep are. They're just dumb creatures who have to be led and have to be guided or else they constantly wander away to their own destruction. And if they don't wander away to their own destruction, the only alternative is that they'll stay completely put 
And they'll take the same like little area of grass and they'll just gnaw that area. And of course they'll get nutrition at first, but then they'll gnaw and gnaw and eventually they'll ruin the pasture. They'll gnaw it down to the roots and completely ruin the grazing because they're just, they're there and they're static. And sheep are animals that have to be led, yes, because they'll wander away, but also because they have to, they have to go to new pasture. They have to be led to new grass. That In ancient Israel, it would be very common for a David as a shepherd or shepherds to set up a sort of base camp and to camp out there at night. And then one day, almost they'd fan out like a clover. They would go one day to this pasture and they would feed. And then they'd come back at night and they would stop and they would rest. And they'd, the next day, they'd go out here and they'd feed and they'd come back at night and they'd rest. And the next day, they'd go over here and have this constant rotation of land because sheep will overgraze. They'll destroy the land if you let them. They have to be led somewhere else. They have to go elsewhere. There's many places all throughout the world, great sheep land, a western United States, a New Zealand, uh, in Africa, in even Palestine. There's great sheep land, but land that's been destroyed because sheep overgraze it and they're not led elsewhere. And this is a very fitting analogy for us because sheep are not meant to be left to themselves. Sheep are meant to be led. Sheep are meant to have a shepherd. They're meant to have someone who is taking them along and is showing them where to go. And in our own lives, we find that this comparison is all too fitting. That we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel that we're prone to leave the God I love. We're prone to wander off. And what happens? That way seems right to us, right? But the end thereof are the ways of death. And we find ourselves stuck. We find ourselves cast. We find ourselves in grave peril. Why? Because we've walked away from the leading of the good shepherd and decided that we know best. Or we're stubborn. And he wants to lead us and he wants to guide us and he wants to move us and he's trying to bring about change in us, but we don't want to. We look and we say, I'm comfortable. I'm happy. I'm right where I am. I don't want to go. I'll just graze right here. And sometimes we refuse that leading and we want to stay put. And before you know it, that land that seemed so good and it seemed like we were getting such nourishment and I can just stay right here, all of a sudden it's gone. We're a bag of bones. Our soul is in dire need of nutrition. And we have to look back to the shepherd and say, Lord, help me. What did I do? Why did I refuse your leading? And in a sheep's life, they literally have to be led to the right path. They have to be led in paths of righteousness. And that is true for us. You're not going to go find righteousness and just, uh, just figure out this Christianity thing all on your own. You need leading. You need the good shepherd. You need him to take you places where you can't take yourself because you don't know how to go or where to go. You need him to go before you, and you need to follow his leading. Now, the danger for us is that we don't want to think that we're bad followers. We naturally want to say and we want to think, well, I'm leading, right? Or I'm, I'm following. Like, I'm surrendered to Jesus. Yeah, I'm, I'm following Jesus. Like, I'm just, I'm, I'm allowing him to lead me. You know, me, I'm great. You know, every day I'm just taking up my cross. I'm following him. I'm, I'm great at this. But if we're honest with ourselves and we ask ourselves a deep penetrating question of, am I really following the Lord's leading? Am I really surrendered to his leadership? Am I really okay with what he says I do, where he leads I go? If we're really okay with that, then there definitely won't be that person in our life that we've been meaning to witness to for eight years and the Lord's been telling us to, your coworker, friend, neighbor, family, whoever they are. But we just, we keep making excuses, right? We keep putting it off. The Lord's leading. He's telling us. He's prompting us. We know we should. 
It, it's ever before us, and, and we get the sense of I should, but oftentimes what do we do? We refuse the leading. We refuse the Holy Spirit's guidance, and we say, no, I'm, I'm going to, for one reason or another, we make an excuse. If the Lord's leading us truly, honestly, and we're surrendered to his leading, why is it that oftentimes we, we take inventory of our lives and we look and we say, man, I'm not, I'm not giving the way I should. I'm not serving the way I should. I'm not praying the way I should. I'm not. Why is that? It's because we're refusing his leading. It's because we're, we're stubborn. It's because we're wandering on our own way in our own lives. Why, why is it that that sin is still dragging you around by the ear? You know, you cut it out and then it just it grows right back. Why is it that you're still being led by that? The reason is because you're not truly following after the Lord. You're not, you're not truly following his leadership. And isn't it funny that even inside of churches, sometimes people that are, that are truly following the Lord, that are, I mean are all out, gung-ho, like I'm fully following Jesus, sometimes even in churches, and this is sad to me, but it's the truth. Sometimes even in churches, we can look at those people and be like, calm down, weirdo. Don't we do that sometimes? We find someone who is just, they are on fire for the Lord. They are, they are pursuing him with all that they have. They're living life for him. They just can't get enough of him. And then they come in contact with us. And, of course, they're sharing. They're talking. They want to talk about the Lord. And we have this, like, yeah, religious zealot, like, tone it down a little bit, right? Like, it doesn't have to be this 24-7 thing. Like, we're in America still. We can st- Even in churches sometimes, it can be when you come across someone who truly is following the Lord's leading and paths of righteousness, that it can be... It can be unique. It can be an anomaly sometimes when you find that person. But the Bible tells us that for us to be led in paths of righteousness, it's because of him. It's through his leading. It's through his guidance that he is going to lead us in paths of righteousness. This is why the Apostle Paul can come to a spot in Galatians 2.20 where he can literally make the proclamation because he's being so led by the Lord that I, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, how do I live it? I live it by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Apostle Paul could come to a point where he could honestly, sincerely say, I'm full out following. I'm, I'm, I'm crucified. I'm taking up my cross. I am following him with everything I have. And that is, that is the point where we should be a sheep. Because destruction or ruin of the land or ruin of our own soul really will happen if we do not follow after him and if we do not surrender to his leading. And it should prompt in us this question of, do I need to surrender afresh to the Lord? Do I need to surrender to his leading? Do I need to say yes to Jesus and allow him to lead me in paths of righteousness like he wants to? So this leading in paths of righteousness, it is for us. It is for our good. It is to to help us so that we don't wander and have our own destruction. But the main point that I want to make today is that it's for our good, yes, but ultimately, over and above our good, is his glory. That The psalmist puts it this way, David puts it this way, we are led in paths of righteousness, why? For his name's sake. For his name, for his glory, for his beauty. That is the reason why we're led. And the psalm takes a shift after this verse next week when we jump into verse number four. The psalm takes a shift. Verses one, two, and three, David has talked in third person. He leads, he restores, he, he, he. And then after this, after this, really this crescendo and this climax of he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, he's going to switch to second person that I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but thou art with me. He's going to start talking to the Lord. But here he comes to the end of this first portion of Psalm 23 and he says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
That word his namesake is the Hebrew word shame, not shame like we would think of it, but shame. And it, it literally means name or fame or renown or famous. This is what the Gibeonites, if you remember in the story of the children of Israel, when they are, when they are coming into the promised land, they defeat Jericho, they defeat Ai, and the nations, the inhabitants of the land begin to form this coalition to come up against Israel and to try to conquer them. But there's one group of people, the Gibeonites, who say that's a fool's errand. We're not conquering them. We're not conquering their God. And they were neighbors to Israel at this point. But what do they do? The Bible says they work wilily. They, they put on old clothes that are tattered. They take some bread and they make sure it's moldy. And they come to the children of Israel. And God had warned Israel, don't make a league with other people. Don't, don't join forces with other people. But they come to them and say, it's been such a long journey. And it's been so long. And it's, we're so tired. And, and would you take us in? And the Bible says this. As they come to them, the Gibeonites say unto Israel, we're come from a very far country. Thy servants are come. Why? Because of the name of the Lord, thy God. For we have heard of the fame of him and, and all that he did in Egypt. And that literally is this word for his namesake, that for the name of the Lord, for his fame. That is what the Bible is saying. And here is, here's the truth that I wrestled with a year ago. The psalmist is saying, God is doing this for you, but you are not the primary reason. God is doing this over and above you, superseding you, the real impetus, the real motive for why he's leading, for why he's caring, the real motive for that is his namesake. The real motive for him doing this is his own glory, not necessarily you and your own benefit. I would, to try to bring this to a practical way, I'd, I'd ask it this way. Who is the most God-centered person in all of the universe? The answer to that question is God himself. I know he's not a person, he's God, but the most God-centered person in all of the world is God himself. Does he care for us? Yes. Does he love us? Yes. Does he lead us? Yes. Does he pick us up when we fall in and he delights in that? Yes. But the primary reason for that is not you. The primary reason for that and the real driver for why he's doing that is his own glory. I would say it this way, and this is where the truth really probably starts to maybe, maybe cause some friction in your own mind. God loves himself and his name and his glory more than he loves you. Now, that's a truth that we possibly wrestle with. And here's why. Many of us, you know, myself even, for a period of time, we're okay with being God-centered as long as God is man-centered. I'm okay with making my life about him as long as he makes his existence and his being about me. And there's this inherent danger, and, and, it's, and, and it, it happens unwittingly. We don't realize we're doing it. But when we make God man-centered and we make what he's doing, even in our lives and his leading and his care, when we make it about us, all of a sudden, really, we've turned God as a means to ourselves, and we've become a, a foolish, stubborn, selfish creature. And that now, God, it's not about him and his name and his glory. It's really about me. And here is, here's the truth that I want to do my best now to pull up the dump load truck of, of Scripture and just kind of let it loose on you. As I want to show you that this truth, this thought that he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake is not some isolated note in the symphony of Scripture. This is an, an ever-occurring, reoccurring motif inside of Scripture that He's doing this for his namesake. So I'm going to ask you 10 questions here 
And these 10 questions are going to take us on a journey all the way from God forming the children of Israel, God taking the children of Israel out of Egypt, God walking with them through the wilderness, God taking them into the promised land, God leading them into captivity, God leading them out of captivity, Jesus' coming and why he came, our redemption, our adoption. And the Bible tells us over and over and over again that it's not really about you. It's not really about me. That it's really about his name and it's really about his glory. And in case you, in case you doubt that, let me, let me give you 10 questions coupled with scriptures here. Question number one, and I'll do them quickly. Why did God create a people for himself? What does the Bible tell us? Why did God create the nation of Israel? Why did he create this people? The Bible tells us in Isaiah 43 verse 7, even everyone, and if you want to put these, these notes in your margin or things like that or study them, I encourage you to. Isaiah 43 7, even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Revelation tells us that all of creation and creation in its sum total was for his glory and was for his good pleasure. Some people get this idea that God created, why did God create the earth? Well, he was sitting in heaven and he was lonely. No, the Bible never says that, okay? The Bible says that we're created for his glory and for his pleasure. He says that he called a people to himself for his namesake. Question two, why did, in these same people, why does God take Moses, raise up Moses, lead these people out of Israel? He doesn't have to do this if he doesn't want to. Why does he do this? The Bible says in Exodus 9, verse 16, and in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up. Talking to Moses, Moses, here's the reason why I'm raising you up as a leader. For to show in thee my power and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Moses, the reason I'm doing this is so that the Gibeonites, one day when you get there, they'll look and they'll see what I'm doing, and they'll say, look at God's name, look at God's fame, look at God's glory. Question three, why does God take them not just out of Egypt, why does God lead Israel into the promised land? Ezekiel 20 tells us that he, God, wrought it for his name's sake. Four, why did God not destroy Israel when they rejected him and they sought human leadership? Why not do away with them? They say, God, we don't want you to, we don't want a theophany here. We want to be ruled by men like other nations. 1 Samuel 12, verse number 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great name's sake. Why did God bring captivity to an adulterous Israel rather than utterly destroying them? The Bible tells us in Isaiah 48. For my name's sake will I defer mine anger. For my praise will I refrain from thee that cut thee off. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. Verse number 11, don't miss this verse. For mine own sake, even for mine own sake will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? I will not give my glory unto another. God says the reason I'm doing this, the reason why I'm taking you through the furnace and I'm trying to purify you and I'm trying to take you through this captivity, the reason is for my name's sake. The reason is that I don't want my name to be polluted. The reason is I'm not going to give my glory to somebody else. This is all really because of me. Six, why did God bring Israel out of captivity? According to Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9 verse 17, Daniel tells us it was for his namesake. Why was God, and this is where it starts to get real and get practical to you, why did God manifest himself in the flesh? We just covered this topic in part all through December. We looked at our series of He Came and we gave biblical reasons of why. And Jesus says, this is my mission. This is why I'm here. I'm come to seek and to save that which is lost. I'm come uh, that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I'm come, uh, the Son of God was manifest in the flesh that he might destroy the works of the devil. I'm come to give my life a ransom for many. That We walked through those passages throughout the month of December. And if we're not careful, we can leave it there. 
And we can think that that's the sum total. That is, that's Jesus' mission. That's, that's the mission he was on. That's why he came to redeem us. But the motive behind that mission is much deeper. If, if we're not careful, we get this impression that God's in heaven looking down and he sees us. And is God pitiful and is he merciful? Yes, he is. But the reason he comes is because he just had so much pity and mercy on us. I mean, he's, he's like the cat lady at the end of my street, right? She just can't help herself but to take in these cats that we all know that they're vile little creatures and you shouldn't take them. And if you're a cat lady, I'm sorry, okay? Uh, I don't mean to step on your toes, but most would look and say, why are you taking in your 29th cat? Okay, wasn't 28 enough? We get this picture that God's the cat lady. He just can't help himself but to, but to, but to want us and, and to redeem us. But the Bible tells us the motive for, for his coming, for him redeeming us, is not that. The motive, does he love us? Yes, he does. But his love is in light of this motive of his glory. I'll show you a couple passages of Scripture. Go to Romans 15. I wanted to get to this passage of Scripture in our He Came series, but I just didn't have enough weeks to get there. So we'll mention it briefly today. Romans 15. Look at verse number 5. Romans is, of course, in the New Testament after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Romans 15, verse number 5. Now, the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. So what is this like-mindedness that we should have? Verse number 6. That ye may, with one mind and with one mouth, what? Glorify God. Even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, wherefore, receive ye one another as Christ also received us unto the glory of God. That the reason we're to receive each other, the reason he received us, the, the real impetus behind all of this is the glory of God. Verse number 8. Now I say that Jesus uh, Christ was the minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the Father, saying basically Jesus came, yes, to confirm the promises made to ancient Israel that he came for that, but verse number 9, and that the Gentiles, which most of us in this room, that's us, we're the Gentiles, most of us, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, for this cause will I confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. Is God merciful? Yes. Is God merciful just because we need his mercy? No. He's merciful. Do we need it? Yes. But he's merciful. At the end of the day, the motive behind it all is so that he gets the glory, so that he gets the praise, so that his, his name is extolled, so that things go further. John 1, the, we know the Word, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we what? We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. That is, that is the primary motive behind why Jesus is coming, is his mission is to save us, but the motive for that is not just because we're pitiful little people and he loves us. Are we pitiful? Sure we are. Does he love us? Yes, he does. But the motive behind all of that is his namesake, it's his glory, it's that he would receive the honor and the praise because of it. Uh, number eight, why did the son come into his final hour in Gethsemane? This is a verse on the back of your connection card that maybe you'll read and study it a little further. But John 12 tells us this. Jesus comes to Gethsemane and he prays this prayer. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. What's, what's the cause, Jesus? Father, glorify thy name. 
Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. The Bible says this is why he comes to the hour. This is what it is. And he says, Lord, glorify your name. And, and a voice comes from heaven. I don't, I've never heard that passage of Scripture preached on. I don't know why. I just never have. The voice comes from heaven and says, look, I have done it, and I'm going to continue to do it to glorify my name. Why did God make us accepted in the beloved? Why did he give us redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins? Ephesians 1 tells us that this reason is to the praise of the glory of his grace. That this is the catalyst behind it all, that he would receive glory. I want you to turn to Philippians 2. I mentioned that this truth really was hiding in plain sight from me for a lot of years. And this passage is, is one that shows that clearly, that I, I read it, I taught it, I preached it. I heard it preached on for a lot of years, but never really got the full impact of it. Philippians 2, verse number 5. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians is the order there in the Bible. Verse number five. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the same thing Romans 15 told us. What's that, what's that mind that we're supposed to have? Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And that's where in my own life, where I would normally cut it. That mind of Christ is this mind of humility. And there is some truth to that, but the, the passage continues. Wherefore, based on this, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. That the, the reason of all of this, when you look at this passage of Scripture that talks about His coming, talks about Him becoming obedient unto death, the death of the cross, all of that is to the praise and to the glory of God the Father. I'll end with this question. Why then, why would we follow Jesus down the path of righteousness? Why follow a good shepherd there? Why live for Him? Why do any of this? If we need his leading and we're, and we're supposed to do this, why? The Bible tells us, Matthew 5, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether therefore you eat, you drink, whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is the motive. That's the catalyst. And we substitute it with other motives often. We substitute it with the motive of just obedience and duty and yes, sir, I, I, cap, and I'll obey. And I'm for obedience and I'm for when he says this, I do it. When he says march, I march. When he says stop, I stop. I'm for that. But haven't we all found that sometimes that duty, that sense of obedience just sometimes falls short and we struggle to will ourselves, we struggle to make ourselves do it? Sometimes we have the motive just for other people. We want to reach them. They need the gospel. They need to be saved. And that is a pure motive and that's a good motive. But doesn't that sometimes even fall short? The real motive and the real driver and the real catalyst that we should have in our life is that in whatever we're doing, eating, drinking, doesn't matter what it is, and whatsoever we do, do it to the glory of God. Do it so that his name goes forth. Do it so that people see him beautifully. Do it so that he receives the glory and the honor and the praise and the power. This is what, really because he deserves it. 
This is what Revelation tells us. The four and twenty elders, they fall down and they sing this song. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. That this is, this is the truth. Does God lead us and guide us, and does he work in our lives for our own good? Yes, he does. But the real reason is not you, and it's not me. It's not us. The real reason is his namesake. The real reason is his glory. The real reason is that people would see him beautifully and clearly, and people would honor and praise and extol him and give him power. That's why when we sing holy, 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 or holy is he, or we sing these songs, it's not just a, it's not just a routine. It's not just a rhythm. It's not just something that we're doing because we always sing around here. It's to honor him. It's to praise him. It's to glorify him. It's to give him his due. It's to give him the glory that he not only deserves, but that he demands and that he is about. That he wants to see his glory and his name go further. I want to end. I'll have you turn to one more passage of Scripture this morning. I told you there'd be a lot. Isaiah 40. I want to leave you with this passage of Scripture that I think does a beautiful job of tying it all together and helping us see the, the point of all of this. Isaiah 40, look in verse number 11. We're going to read seven or eight verses here. Isaiah 40 gives us a beautiful picture that ties into Psalm 23 of the Lord being our shepherd and caring for us and guiding us and leading us. Verse number 11. He, God, shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom. He shall gently lead those that are with young. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? That here's God who is feeding his flock, who's gathering up this little lamb in his arm and is carrying it around, who's leading the mother and these little lambs. He's leading them along. It's a beautiful picture of who God is and what God is. But then Isaiah walks straight into almost this, um, almost this rebuke and he starts to ask these rhetorical questions about this God who's leading us and feeding us and caring for us and carrying us. And he starts to ask these questions. Verse number 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out the heaven with the span and comprehendeth the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in the scales and hills in a balance? He said, who, you're going to measure the earth? You're, you're going to weigh the mountains? You're going to understand creation we're just now beginning to understand the complexity and the enormity of, of creation and what God has done he says in verse number 13 who has directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor has taught him you leading him you teaching him something the obvious answer to that is no verse number 14 with whom took he counsel who instructed him who taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and showed, him, showed to him the way of understanding? Well, you, you teach God, you take him to the side, my God, let me, let me show you something. Let me, you need some understanding here. No. Verse number 15. Behold, the nations, that's us, all of us, the, the earth, the nations are as a drop of a bucket. They're counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the aisles as a very little thing. Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. 
All the nations before him, there is nothing. They're counted to him less than nothing in vanity. Isaiah is talking about who God is and how big God is and how great God is. Verse number 18. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? He says, based on this, this same God that loves us and feeds us and leads us and picks us up and carries us, that God, how are you going to describe him? How are you going? You're going to give him counsel. You're going to tell him what to do. You're going to understand all his ways. You're going to liken him to something. You're going to come up with this cute little analogy to define who God is. He says, no, you're not. Understand who God is. Understand his absolute uniqueness. Understand his holiness. Understand that he's in a category all by himself. We are all, you, me, we're humans. Rover is a dog. Oak is a tree. Gabriel is an angel. The earth is a planet. The Milky Way is a galaxy. We're we're all fit in some sort of little class, but God does not. God is in a class altogether different. He is God alone by himself. Everything is created other than God. He creates. Everything is dependent and and needs some sort of sustaining in all of the universe other than God. He's the only one that's self-sufficient. When you begin to see who he is and how big he is and how grand he is, and it's this God that wants to lead us and carry us and guide us, then all of a sudden it is... It begins to merge this thought of, yes, he's caring, and yes, he loves me, and yes, he wants to do this for my good, but when it's all said and done, it's really about him. It's about his glory. It's about his honor. It's about his namesake, that he is self-sufficient. He's not dependent on anyone else, and I understand that. And so the point of today, you say, what's, what's the point of all this? What's the point of the lesson? The point is that you see, yes, he leads me, and yes, he guides me, but really, This is not about you. God is not man-centered. God is God-centered. God wants his glory. He wants his praise. And it's our job to give it to him. The point of today is that hopefully you will emancipate yourself from yourself. That you will see that the world does not revolve around you. Even God's love and his redemption is not at the end of the day about you. It's about him. And based on that truth of the Bible, which is, I gave you a few today, but there's, there's a lot there. Based on that truth, whether we eat or we drink or whatsoever we do, we do it to the glory of God. Why? Because He's worthy to receive honor, to receive glory, to receive power. As the 24 elders sing in Revelation, it's not just future that they sing that. He's worthy now. And the point is that our lives should be centered on God they should be centered on his glory. It should be centered on, I'm going to do everything I can to, to be salt and light in this earth. Yes, but at the end of the day, it's so that they can glorify God. I'm going to do my best to witness. I'm going to do my best to follow him in the paths of righteousness. I'm going to do all that. But at the end of the day, it's for his name's sake. It's for his glory. It's for him because how, how could we not? When we look at the sum total of what he has done for us and the redemption that he has brought to us, How could we not in whatever we do, eat, drink, share, witness, work, pray, doesn't matter. Do it all to the glory of God.